Well, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and now we've come to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to encourage all of you to turn in your Bibles as we look into the Scriptures, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, as we read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We've been studying through this book and covering various subjects, and uh, Peter is writing here to a group of Christians who are scattered about Asia Minor, because of persecution around the time of Nero's persecution, A.D. 65. We've been going through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we come to a a section in which Peter addresses the subject of marriages, marriages and the relationship between husbands and wives. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The text reads... In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear." You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study of the Word of God this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before your Word. We ask, Father, that you would once again open our eyes, that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. May your word be honored, may it be divided correctly. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I thought I'd begin this morning perhaps on a little bit of a lighter note, being that this is a subject that can be very sensitive. I read a story last week about a concerned husband. This husband went to his family doctor and he said, I think my wife is deaf. She never hears me the first time I say something. In fact, I have to repeat over and over things again. The doctor sympathized with him and he said, Sir, how about this? Why don't you go home tonight and stand about 15 feet from your wife and say something. If she doesn't reply, then move five feet closer and say something again until she does hear you and then we can determine perhaps the severity of her hearing loss. 
Well, sure enough, the husband thought that that was a good idea, and so he goes home as instructed, and he stands about 15 feet from his wife, who's in the kitchen chopping some vegetables. And he says, Honey, what's for dinner? He hears no response, so he moves five feet closer. And he says, Honey, what's for dinner? And he hears no response, and so he does it again, and he moves five feet closer, and he says, Honey, what's for dinner? By this time, he's rather frustrated because he has no response, and then he moves up right next to her, about an inch from her ear, right behind her, and he says, Honey, what's for dinner? She stops chopping the vegetables and looks up and says, For the fourth time, vegetable stew. Well, today we're looking at the subject of marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives and how they relate to each other and particularly how wives relate to husbands. And we've been looking at God's very practical, very practical exhortations here that stem, I believe, from verse 12 of chapter 2, in which he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The text stems from here in that God desires that we live such excellent lives before those who are not believers, those who are non-Christians, those who don't know the Lord, so that they would come and glorify God someday when they come to know Christ, meaning the day of visitation. And then he tells them about three particular areas in which their, their attitude and their actions should be exemplary. And he continues on, and we've gone over the subject of how we are to relate to our government, how we are to honor those who are in governing authorities above us. We've also covered the subject of masters and slaves or employers and employees, how we are to our relationship, our conduct before those who are employers. And today we come to the subject of our relationship in marriage, husbands and wives. Now, you remember the audience to whom, to whom Peter was writing. He was writing to people who were persecuted by the Roman government. And he tells them, honor those who are in the governing authorities above you and submit to them. And then he writes to slaves. These slaves or servants, as I mentioned to you last week, were not treated well necessarily, although some had good masters, some were well-educated, some were perhaps even uh, more educated than their own masters, and some even owned slaves of their own. But by and large, most of them were not treated well, not treated fairly, they had no rights, and yet he tells these servants to show their masters respect, even if they are harsh or unreasonable, in the same way we are to show honor and respect for those who employ us. And now he continues on and, and, and encourages us in our relationships in marriage, our relationships of wives to husbands. And he gives them the command which comes in verse 1 of chapter 3 as you look at your text. In your text it reads this way. In the same way, he says, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. When the text says, in the same way, it is not likening or making an analogy between wives and servants or wives and slaves in the previous section. Rather, it is the attitude. It is the attitude of submission in marital relationships that is being communicated, just as the attitude is to our government, just as the attitude is to our masters. 
And the word in, is, in the Greek is hupotasso, meaning being subject to or to submit. And it says in the text as well, to your own husbands, to your own husbands. It is not others in the family, not husbands in general, but to one's own husbands. Now, one of the things to understand in the context of this passage is the role of the husband in the New Testament times. In the role of the husband in New Testament times, he was the one who set the standard for the religious beliefs in the home. So if a wife became a Christian before the husband did, there were serious and potential implications There were serious consequences because to the husband who set the standard, you see, if the husband was an idol worshiper, everybody else in the whole family was an idol worshiper and they all followed his lead. But if a wife came to know Christ, there were serious consequences. It would be seen as embarrassing or shameful or defiant or rebellious towards the husband. And because of the spiritual mismatch, there would be an unequally yoked situation where one is a Christian and one is not. Now, today, unequally yoked situations still happen, of course. It's very common, in fact. Sometimes, just as in the case that Peter is writing to, there is a person who is a Christian and a person who is a non-Christian, and they are married somehow. Maybe it was because one of them came to know Christ after they got married, and now you have a pretend, you have a marriage where there is a Christian married to a non-Christian. Sometimes it is a young Christian who perhaps doesn't know what the Word of God teaches, and they end up marrying perhaps their high school sweetheart who isn't a believer or whatever it might be. Some do so out of disobedience simply to God's Word, knowing that it is not God's will. Or sometimes you can have an unequally yoked situation where you have uh, perhaps a young man or a young woman who merely pledges to be a Christian and says, I'm a Christian because they know what God's word says and they know that pastors won't, won't marry somebody who is a, a believer and not a believer and so they fool the other person into it, so to speak. Well, there are many situations in which this can occur and today, just as it was in the past, one may know Christ and the other may not. And it's most often, interestingly enough, just like Peter writes here, most often in today's day and age, It is the wife who comes to know Christ first. And for some reason, for many reasons I should say, there's often conflict. There's often conflict. Why is there conflict? In fact, this is why Peter writes this passage here. How to deal with some of the things that may come up. Well, obviously, there will be a difference in value when you have an unequally yoked situation. You'll have differences in value in the raising of your children. How do you raise your children? By what principles do you go by? How do you handle money? How do you make choices of entertainment? How are you going to make choices regarding morality or the way that time is spent? But sometimes there are unspoken feelings in the heart of husbands. Lee Strobel was a former atheist who writes about his feelings where his wife became a Christian. And he says, he writes this, quote, What's more, I felt like I was losing respect from Leslie, and that made me feel hurt. All of a sudden, after years of being each other's biggest admirers, she was being attracted towards a whole new bunch of people. The kind of individuals she was starting to look up to and emulate were Christians who had an authentic, vibrant, and growing relationship with Jesus. Where did that leave a non-Christian like me? 
Although she had never had a bad word to say about me, I felt that in her eyes I was being diminished. In the same book, there was a man who wrote, and he says this about his feelings, quote, When a man's wife becomes a Christian, it's a whole different kind of threat. Suddenly, she has a love relationship with someone he can't even see. He can't understand anything she tries to tell him about his, her, this new God she has come to know. All he knows is that she's in love with someone else. And he is jealous. Instead of remaining the first priority in her life as when they first got married, he has suddenly become demoted to number two after God. It would be easier for him to understand if she had run off with another man, but she's in love with someone he can't even compete with. He feels helpless, unquote. Well, knowing that conflict is inevitable, Peter writes to wives and he gives them instructions. How does one conduct themselves in some of the most difficult of circumstances? And the question is, what is a Christian spouse to do when there is a non-Christian that they are married to? The marital situation that Peter writes about, as I've shared with you, is not uncommon. Not, in, not only in today's day and age, all of us perhaps even know someone or is in a family that is such. The marital situation is rather common. So, even Paul addresses it. I'd like to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, as we look at the same subject that Peter writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you turn in your text there... Paul is writing to address a number of things in the book of 1 Corinthians, a number of questions that the people in Corinth had. One of them is regarding this subject of one who is married to one who is not a Christian, one who is a believer. And just to give you a context, they were asking, because they had the question of, should I perhaps leave my un, un, non-Christian husband now that I'm in an unequally yoked situation, what does the Bible say? And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 7, 13 to 15. And he says this. He says, And a woman who has, had, who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. If yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. What you had a situation, what you have here is a situation. And the situation is that of a Christian married to someone who is not. And the question is, what do you do? And Paul answers that by saying, simply saying this. If the one who is not a Christian desires to live with you, then don't send them away. Don't send them away because you're unequally yoked. Why? It says there, because the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. What does that mean? Does that mean that they somehow become saved? That there's some covenant that envelops not only the unsaved spouse, but the children as well, for they are now holy? What does sanctification mean in that case? What does that verse mean? Well, it means this. This sanctification and this term that is used here in this context is a reference to what we call matrimonial or familial sanctification. Not personal or salvific. In other words, 
or in plain language, when one spouse or one parent comes, uh, becomes a Christian, they bring with them into the family godly values, godly thinking, godly ways of doing things, godly morals, godly conduct. And in such a way, they bring a certain godliness to the family. And when they do, there is a sanctifying effect. You see, sanctification means the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And when that person becomes a Christian, there are things that they stop doing. There are things that they start doing. There's conduct that affects the family. There's, there's actions and attitudes that begin to change. And sort of a, a value system and a standard that becomes a part of that family. And so there is a type of sanctification, a matrimonial or a familial sanctification in which they are more like Christ as, a, as Christ would desire the family to be. It's not salvific. The spouse doesn't become saved. Those of you who have been Christians for a while know that simply because you're born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. It is a personal decision. But this is what that particular passage means. That Christian spouse brings with them godliness to the family and it is a blessing. That is why it says, do not send your spouse away. But, as it says here, if the person who is not a Christian wants to leave, it says there in the text, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, and God has called us to peace. And as much as God desires for marriages to always work out, God hates divorce, but here is a case where it says in the text, if they want to leave, if they want to leave, then there's no command to pursue them or stand in their way. In fact, the command is different. It is to let them leave. If the non-Christian has abandoned the marriage or the family, then the Christian is not under bondage to that marriage and is free to remarry in the future. Why is this the case? And Paul gives the reason here. Why allow the non-Christian to leave? Because the Bible says God has called us to peace. Now you think about what he was writing because as I mentioned in those times there would be severe conflict. Perhaps that wife would be abused by their husband. Perhaps they would be treated extremely, extremely badly. Perhaps there were severe circumstances and he wouldn't want to be around or whatever might be the case. And of course, we sometimes see that that's the case even today. And clinging to such a relationship would result perhaps in more fighting or abuse or whatever it might be, turmoil. And so Paul's instruction is if they want to go, let them leave. Because why? God has called us to peace. Now we look back at 1 Peter at the text once again. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter addresses the all-too-frequent case where the husband is not a Christian and desires to stay in the marriage. More often than not, as I've shared with you even today, it is the wife that comes to know Christ first. So the question then is, how should the wife conduct herself in a home even where she may be a Christian and he is not? And the command that God has given to us is to be submissive to your own husband's. Wayne Grudem is a professor of theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and he's written a book partly with John Piper entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And he lists a number of things that submission is not. I'd like to share some of those with you. It is not, for example, putting a husband in the place of Christ. 
It is not putting a husband in the place of Christ. Everyone who submits, submits to Christ directly. Just as I shared with you when, in the passage previous to this, when we are working for an employer, we are employed, in a sense, by Christ. But it is not replacing your employer as Christ or treating them as such. It is not, secondly, giving up independent thought. It is not giving up independent thought. Certainly, what Peter does not imply is blind obedience. Thirdly, does not mean that a wife should give up efforts to influence or guide her husband. Especially if she's a Christian and he is not, well, she has wisdom that comes from the scriptures, the things that the scriptures has, has taught, and she is, of course, to share those things with her husband. And certainly, practically speaking, many wives today are just plain smarter, wiser, more gifted than their spouse. So it doesn't mean that they should give up influencing in a godly way. Fourthly, does not mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband doesn't mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. You can imagine in biblical times, if a wife came to know Christ and her husband was likely an idolater, one who worshipped at the local temple and participated in the pagan feast, he would want her to do the same. And in those cases, of course, she is not to participate. She is not to bow down or to offer things to the idols. And you can imagine the conflict that would ensue. But whenever it is against the Word of God, when it is against the principles of the Word of God, implicitly or explicitly, well, she should not obey. And then there is submission is not based, fifthly, is not based upon lesser intelligence or competence, Wayne Grudem writes. There is no difference in value, there's no difference in virtue, there's no difference in ability, no difference in the quality of a person. There's simply a distinction in the roles that men and women have in the marriage relationship. Sixthly, he writes, submission does not mean being fearful or timid. Does not mean that there is fear of speaking the truth in love or being truthful. It is that of an attitude. It is an attitude that affirms, it is an attitude that affirms the leadership of the husband and recognizes biblically the authority in the family is not completely mutual. It's not completely mutual. In a godly Christian family, there is mutual consideration. In a godly Christian family, there is deference that is given. In a godly Christian family, decisions are often discussed, compromises are often made, resolutions are often wiser when talked about and discussed rather than unilaterally made. And so there is deference, great deference that is, in, that is to be a part of a family. But the leadership and the final authority in the family resides in the husband and father, biblically. And when there is disagreement, different points of view, which there always will be in every relationship, it gives deference to the husband's God-given role of leading. Not begrudgingly, not with resentment, not with some sort of passive-aggressive kind of uh, attitude, but recognizing that God, our God, is in control and we are to function in the roles that God has placed for us in marriage. And he gives the reason in verse 1b, the reason in verse 1b, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see, some husbands are Christians in what Peter is writing to, but some are not. It says, even if any, because there aren't some, there are not. He says, those who are disobedient to the word. 
And that is, a, that is a phrase that Peter uses here to refer to those who don't know the Lord as their Savior. And the reason, the reason is so that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by their godly conduct and behavior. Now, there's no guarantee. There is no guarantee that a husband will be won over by a godly wife. And there are many godly women who have lived lives of exemplary uh, conduct before their husbands. And yet their husbands don't come to know Christ. And sometimes they even become more angry or become very difficult. Some have not lived very godly lives and God has yet saved their spouse in some way, shape or form. But whether or not someone ultimately comes to Christ is something that we can't control. However can be easier or more difficult by the conduct of one's spouse. And if one's spouse is to come to know Christ, it is not going to be through nagging them or through guilt trips or through tracks taped on the bathroom mirror. It is not going to be having the pastor visit them on Saturday night either. So Peter writes here, no, it will be because of godly behavior of their wives, godly conduct. And the assumption here is that she has somehow shared with them or he has knowledge of how one comes to know Jesus as his savior. So what does it look like? What does it look like? The means in verse two, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry and putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, that the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. As they observe one's chaste and respectful behavior. The word chaste here in the NIV, it is translated purity, means pure and free from moral defilement. The first means is that you're a person who has a high moral standard. If you want to win your spouse over to Christ, you have a high moral standard. With moral standard that is different. You're not participating in the things that the world would participate that would pollute their lives and pollute their heart. You're keeping yourself pure for Christ. And chaste means that you live what you believe. You live according to the word of God and not like the world. Secondly, the second word there is respectful. And that's very important. That is a very important, especially attitude for for men. As men desire to have respect more than love. The Bible is interesting because the Bible commands uh, wives to respect their husbands more oftentimes than to love their husbands. Versus the opposite of uh, husbands commanded to love their wives. And that makes sense as well, because a leader, if God has instructed them to be a leader in the family, he needs to possess the respect of those that he leads. If you imagine to yourself, if you're in the military and you're a general or a captain or some position of leadership and your troops don't respect you when you ask them to to do something that is for the benefit of the entire platoon, they're not going to follow as readily. But it is important that one's leadership have respect. And it is very important. Another uh, author writes, quote, Respect is a crucial ingredient in marriage, especially to husbands. It tells your spouse that you appreciate him, that you value him as a person, that you regard his opinions as being important, that you have faith in him, that you admire him. 
that you're thankful for who He is and what He does, and that you hold Him in the highest esteem. If you lose respect for your husband, you may very well end up losing your husband because he will sense your disappointment in him. Your low opinion of him will inevitably leak out in disparaging comments and wound him deeply. He will withdraw emotionally and maybe even physically, unquote. One thing about respecting one's husband comes because the text, as it is written here, it is a command. It is a command to respect one's husband. You might be thinking, well, my husband doesn't deserve respect, or he's not very respectable because he does things like this, or he acts like that, or, you know, respect. Respect is earned, it's not given. Have you ever heard that? Respect is earned, it's not to be given. The Bible says that even though he may not measure up to your expectations or measure up to even God's expectations, though, but respect is to be given to him because of his God-given role. Just like conversely, it would be false to hear somebody say, well, my wife doesn't deserve to be loved because he or she, or she, I should say she, doesn't do these things. Love is earned. It's not given. And that would be just as wrong. Just as wrong for a husband to say, well, you know what? Love is earned, not given. Uh, God's command is for husbands to love their wives unconditionally and not make it earned. And so, too, respect is to be given. It is not conditional and it is not to be necessarily earned. One is to be given. It is a command. If you find it hard to respect your husband because of maybe some of the negative things in the past that you've found difficult, maybe some things that fill your mind, I encourage you to focus on things that are positive. In her book, When a Believer Marries a Non-Believer, B.B. Nicholson writes this, quote, Respecting the other person, refusing to attack the other's most vulnerable area, and viewing the other person with kindness and love, even in the heat of battle, are crucial if we're to avoid a downward spiral of negativity. We must learn to see our partner in a positive light, even when the fires of disagreement are raging. We must stick with the issue being discussed instead of attacking the other personally. We need to refrain from arguing in front of others or discussing our spouse in a negative light with other people. We need to let positive thoughts replace the negative ones, unquote. And so when you get together with other husbands or when you get together with other wives, don't complain about your spouse and denigrate them in front of others and say they do this, they do that, or don't you know that this and that. And don't talk down to them or be contentious or argumentative. Don't always feel as if you have to play the devil's advocate or pick at their faults or pick at their words that they say or pick at their grammar. Rather, look behind that. What are they trying to communicate? And don't air all of the dirty laundry outside of the family to others. Speak about them, how you would appreciate them to speak about you behind your back. We understand sometimes there are times when people need help and and we understand circumstances like that. But by and large, it's too easy, far too easy for husbands to talk about their wives or for wives to talk about their husbands among other wives and other husbands and to denigrate them or to disparage them, complaining about them. 
do to them as you would desire that they do to you. So show respect by affirming them. Show respect by asking questions or seeking their advice or by speaking well of them behind their back. Show respect by giving them of your time and deferring to their leadership. There was an atheist who wrote about his wife and how his wife showed him respect. And that was, and the things that she did was, he writes that she actively searched for ways to serve him. Or that she just didn't hear me when we talked, but she listened to me. Or she allowed me to feel needed. Or she honored our relationship by building on our common ground. Or she refrained from comparing me with Christian husbands. She loved me as her partner, not as her project. Even though this particular person was often antagonistic or sarcastic or angry at times or even ready to give up on their marriage. But God changed that individual's heart and eventually that person came to know Christ. There's no guarantee, as I mentioned to you earlier, there's no guarantee that someone will turn to the Lord Jesus and become a Christian. As 1 Corinthians 7 tells us, there will be people who will turn to God as other people who will turn away and walk away from everything. But in either case, God calls us by His grace to have a heart that desires to win them to the Lord Jesus by our behavior, that they might be won over by a godly life, the godly life of their spouse. And next week we'll look at other qualities of a wife and the qualities of a husband and how he is to conduct himself before her. All for the glory of God, that our behavior might be excellent, that when people come, in verse 12, as it says, as they observe the godly behavior, glorify God in the day of visitation. When they come to know Christ, that they might say, I remember the attitudes and the action of my godly spouse. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we desire, Lord, to have a testimony that is bright and shining for you. And Father, we know, Lord, that you desire that others would come to know you as their Lord and Savior. By your grace, O oh God, you have saved us. By your grace, O oh God, you have granted to us the grace of life. May we, in the way that we conduct ourselves and our families, be reflective of your Son for his glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.